welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Oh, by the way, I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, very feel very privileged to be here on this call with y'all. Um, I'm going to start on page 561 of the fourth edition of the Big Book, one of my favorite readings. So about the AA tradition. To those now in its fold, Alcoholics Anonymous has made the difference between misery and sobriety and often the difference between life and death. AA can, of course, mean just as much to uncounted alcoholics not yet reached. Therefore, no society of men and women ever had a more urgent need for continuous effectiveness and permanent unity. We alcoholics see that we must work together and hang together, else most of us will finally die alone. The 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous are, we AAs believe, the best answers that our experience has yet given to those ever-urgent questions. How can AA best function, and how can AA best stay whole and so survive? On the next page, is AA's 12 traditions are seen in the so-called short form, the form in general used today. This is a condensed version of the original long form. AA Traditions, it has printed in 1946. Because the long form is more explicit and the possible historic value, it is also reproduced. So we're on, we're on Tradition 7. And on page 562, the short form says, Every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. And on 563, it states that, or no, excuse me, 564, It states that the AA groups themselves ought to be fully self-supported by the voluntary contributions of their own members. They think that each group should soon achieve this ideal, that any public solicitation of funds using the name of Alcoholics Anonymous is highly dangerous, whether by groups, clubs, hospitals, or other outside agencies that accept any large gifts from any source or of contributions carrying any obligation, whatever, is unwise. Then, too, we view with much concern those AA treasuries which continue beyond prudent reserves to accumulate funds for no stated purpose, for no stated AA purpose. Experience has often warned us that nothing can so surely destroy our spiritual heritage as futile disputes over property, money, and authority. And that's all I'm going to take out of the big book. And... Um, Bill wrote extensively, um, you read it in the AA Comes of Age and also in the 12 and 12, you'll notice that it's very similar, a lot of what is written um, on the traditions, uh, especially on the traditions and the steps, but in the traditions. And I'm going to start off uh, today with some some highlights out of this uh, uh, AA Comes of Age, and that starts out on page 110. And um, I might say that this Tradition 7 is one that can, um, it 
can get a little dicey at times when when people want to uh, try to discuss it. And and uh, as we go along in sobriety, sometimes we believe that AA should be changing and we should be doing things different. But the one thing I really love about these traditions is that Bill and, and everybody put these things together to protect AA from people just like me and from Bill. And uh, so far it has been working if we follow them. I, I personally have found at times that the traditions seem to interfere with my will, and which is a very good thing. And I know that, it, that for AA it's been a very good thing that it interferes with all of our wills sometimes because it's been proven through history and through other fellowships that uh, what, what's laid out here in these traditions, the principles of them, uh, has really protected us and kept us so whole and and therefore, we can be of use and value to other alcoholics and people from all kinds of fellowships who have not yet been reached. The basic tenets, 12 steps, the program has been passed on to the, the General Service Office has actually given permission to over 300 fellowships to use the 12 steps in the tradition. And as many people have received uh, so much benefit in been saved from uh, whatever malady they suffer from. And I know that for me, it saved me from alcoholism. And then once I got into AA and, and had done the steps and was in here being of service, the traditions have saved me from me and Alcoholics Anonymous from me. Um, okay, on page 110 in the first paragraph, um, it says, in the first paragraph, it said, Would AA's brand of spirituality mix with any money at all? Or, on the other hand, would we have a lot of money and the better to do good works? This was an age-old dilemma and the temptation that faced us. And then down toward the bottom of the page, in the last paragraph, um, it's about St. Francis. And it says here that for the purpose of his society, Francis thought corporate poverty to be fundamental. The less money and property they had to quarrel about, the less would be the diversion from their primary purpose. And, and just like AA today, his outfit did not need much money to accomplish its mission. Why be tempted and diverted when there was no need for it? Moving on to page 111 at the top in the first paragraph, uh, about the second sentence, it says, For us, this does not mean no money at all, but it does mean the least possible money to do the job well. It is in this sense that AA has declared for the principle of corporate poverty. It is the chief safeguard of our future. And I, I double underline that part. It says it is the chief safeguard of our future. And by staying out of the, the financial world and getting all caught up in money and, and power and prestige, this tradition really lays it out in this, this corporate poverty. Being, and it is our chief safeguard. It keeps us from running amok and, and starting to do things that we have no business doing. We need to have an office and we need to answer the phones. And and uh, like when the first article was written um, and, and hit the Saturday evening post and, and the answer and inquiries really started coming in, we need people to answer those those inquiries. But that's that's all. That's what we're supposed to be there for and to carry on the job of carrying this message. When we start to exceed that is when we get into trouble, and that's what the traditions are here to help us um, uh, not do. It says, despite our, and on the next paragraph, it says, despite our early tradition of keeping AA poor for its own safety, 
we were still to have temptations. There were three of them. The first came with John D. Rockefeller. And boy, they thought they were going to get a load of money there, and it was all going to be taken care of, and they were going to be set, and it was going to be taken care of. And most unbelievably, in that in the third paragraph down, it says, Mr. Rockefeller had other ideas. He said, I think money will spoil this. I can imagine the jaws hitting the floor when he said that. Um, he acted accordingly, and AA stayed poor. St. Francis had given us the idea, but John D. wisely forced us to live up to it. This was this was the obvious sort of pair who, really, who were really responsible for AA's tradition on money. Thank God for them both. And I have to say, what an amazing uh, amount of people that were put together by a power greater than all of us to guide this uh, this fellowship and many other fellowships that formed to help people live um, by helping them get through, get help for their maladies um, by devising these traditions and giving us all this history and this experience and guiding us down this path. Down a little farther in that uh, next paragraph, it says, Mr. Rockefeller, uh, no, just a little bit farther down in the next one, it says, we still drag our heels when the hat is passed to support local intergroup offices and general headquarters. And this holding back is not for lack of folding money either. The collective income of AA's membership, the sum of our wages, salaries, and other um, emoluments will presently each will reach a total of a billion dollars yearly. When sober and working, few alcoholics have any money trouble. Our earning power as individuals may actually be double the average. The material payoff as well as the spiritual payoff of AA's way of life is downright incredible. Nevertheless, we still balk a bit when it comes to paying AA's very reasonable service bills. Sometimes I think this may be all to the good. There is not the slightest danger that AA is ever going to get too rich from the voluntary contributions of its own members. And in my experience, uh, being around other fellowships, I see the same thing. And I know that it happens that we can get to where we're doing so well, yet sometimes trying to get people to donate to, to take care of the services of AA is very, very tough. Sometimes even just to pay the rent and do things that, uh, I know that you really have to talk a lot of times, you know, to say, hey, people, come on, this. it's more than just us. There's a lot of people out there. When I was a, a delegate, I, I got to listen to one of our trustees at large talk about all the countries in the world that don't even, and they don't even have the big book in their language yet. You know, they can only get it from neighbors who have other languages, but they can't be translated as easily as one might think because, the person who translates that has to know the book of AA and what it's like to be an alcoholic in order to translate what's in the, in the big book into a language that they can understand. And I know that it's the same thing for the other fellowships with their, with their books. Just translating it straightforward, it just doesn't make sense. My one experience with this was a, a fellow that I met uh, who had moved to Canada, and he sobered up there, and he was from Finland. And after he was sober some time, he went to a, to a conference. And at this conference, he, uh, he happened to spot a, a book book in his own language, which was Finn. And he was so excited, and he bought the book, and he took it to his room that night, and he read it. The next day, he came down, and he asked them, who translated this? He says, this doesn't even make sense. 
And that was the first time that anybody really got a grasp of how important it was to have somebody translating that knows what the big book is about and what it's like to be an alcoholic. It's just like having somebody who's been educated in college or somewhere else coming into one of the fellowships and trying to explain to them what it's like to be one of the uh, an alcoholic or a sexaholic or an Al-Anon or a gambler or a or, uh, narcotics uh, user, whatever. We need somebody who's lived it and done it, just like when Bill talked to Bob and Bob recognized it for the first time. And that's what's so important about getting these good translations, and that's what some of the funding is needed for um, the World Translation Fund for doing that stuff so that people can be reached. Hey, Bob, um, was, was that uh, the translation that uh, translated the flesh, no, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and how it was translated is the meat is rotten, but the vodka is good? Well, I don't know if... I, I really personally don't know that, but I know that uh, when I listened to this gentleman talking, he just said that it just did, a lot of it just didn't even make sense because of the way it was translated. And I know that that's a problem still uh, when we get to rushing too fast. We want to help everybody, but we have to make sure the translations are correct so that they get what they're after when they pick up a book from, say, AA or SA or OA or GA or any of them. Actually, actually, Robert, that translation was from a government computer back in the 50s. Thank That's you. what I remember. Oh. Well, Interesting. You. Well, I know about Bakken. I know about rotten meat, both. So um, I prefer not to do either one now. Uh, <laughs> um um, on the next paragraph down, it says, it was in 1941, just after the Saturday Evening Post story broke, the income from the AA book would not pay for answering the thousands of inquiries. We had set up a dollar a year per member as the measuring stick for voluntary contributions that might meet the bill. It was the first time AA headquarters had asked groups for any help. I might add that I don't think we've hit that goal yet. Because <clears throat> it's it's uh, I think well I think we've hit over a dollar now but it's very very small in comparison in AA for the number of people who are in it how much is contributed per member per year but fortunately there's a lot of members that contribute a lot more so that the job can get done um, I'm going to skip over to page 113 now at the top in that first paragraph. Um, <clears throat> When Bill was uh, thinking that he was really doing good, he was uh, he was donating money one night at a at a at a um, meeting that they were at, and there was a fellow that he was talking to, and he said and he had, what he had done was the guy who had uh, he was really hurting and he was really mad because nobody was helping out, and he gave this guy a five dollar bill. And later on, he says, "I realized that my five dollar gift to the backslider was an ego feeding act." Bad for him and bad for me. There was a place in AA where spirituality and money would mix, and that was in the hat. I never since have criticized anybody for failing to send a dollar or so to headquarters. And I thought that was amazing. Uh, a word, the, the combination of words that I've heard here in this last year that uh, just means so much to me is spiritual arrogance. 
when I heard that, I thought, oh, boy, I've been guilty of that many times. I just, you know, we get well in here, and I know for myself, there's been times I, I got well, and then all of a sudden I got spiritually arrogant, and I was really looking down on my nose, uh, down my nose at other people for what they were doing or not doing. And I had to, to grow up and just do what I'm supposed to do instead of trying to run everybody else's life. Although I do like to get that rings in my hand and teach them how to trot once in a while. <clears throat> Our third money temptation was the greatest peril of all three. And that um, one night, the trustees of our foundation were having their quarterly meeting. The agenda included a crucial question. A certain lady had died, and when her will was read, it was discovered that she had left to Alcoholics Anonymous in trust with the foundation a sum of $10,000. The question was, should AA take the gift or not? And as you read down through this, they had a great debate over it and thinking, well, what all we could do with that? And then they finally realized that they couldn't do that because what they were going to do is set up a real terrible problem within the, with with all of us. And it, and it says uh, they already had, uh, many people had already set aside money to give to AA in their will. And when they died, it was going to be coming in, and they had to learn how to take care of that. Um, and in the last last paragraph down there at the bottom, it says uh, compared to this prospect of $10,000 under consideration was not much, but like the alcoholic's first drink, it would then, if taken, inevitably set up a disastrous chain reaction. Where would that land us? And if we started accepting these big gifts and taking in money from people who were um, not in the fellowship and even limiting what we can take from people in the fellowship, and I believe today it's, well, I could be mistaken on this, but I think it's right at Three thousand, twenty-five hundred to three thousand dollars is the most you can give in a year, and uh, that has climbed over the years since I came in. But and and we can't take it from anybody's estate that uh, somebody in the family wants to give us. We've had that happen right here in Billings, Montana, where a lady tried to give us a whole bunch of money back when I was in the district here in, in uh, Billings, and uh, we had to we we went to her and explained that we really appreciated it, the, the offer, but that because of our traditions and the way it is set up, that we would not be able to accept that money. And uh, she took it really well. It was amazing. And she was a little amazed, too, that a bunch of alcoholics would turn down that kind of money. But uh, And I was, it sure amazed me that it had grown that much to where I could understand why that had to be, because once we start taking that money, we're, we're we're just selling ourselves, and it's just going to get worse and worse. And I believe that with any fellowship, any of the fellowships that are trying to live by these traditions and these these steps, um, it's going to end up in the same thing. Whoever pays the piper is apt to call the tune. And if the AA Foundation obtained money from outside sources, its trustees might be tempted to run things without reference to the wishes of AA as a whole. Every alcoholic feeling relieved of responsibility would shrug and say, oh, the foundation is wealthy. Why should I bother? The pressure of that fat treasury would surely tempt the board to invent all kinds of schemes to do good with such funds and so divert AA from its primary purpose. And there lies the huge danger. It would draw us away from our primary purpose and get us all caught up in other things, much as we saw in the history of the Washingtonians um, how they got all diverted from everything and, and uh, they got caught up in that and they died. They, they disappeared. Um, in the next paragraph down, 
It says they declared for the principle that AA must always stay poor. And, and, uh, so far the donations from the, from the, and I know for AA, the donations from the groups have not, have not overwhelmed them. They, they haven't had uh, too many. I know that in about, I believe it was 1960, they, they were, they were, the donations were enough to handle it, to handle the expenses, but just barely. And I know that over the years, it hasn't been, um, the donations from the groups haven't been enough. Therefore, they started relying on the, um, uh, some of the, the profits from the sale of literature, and we'll get into that after a bit. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, it says down here a little bit, and adopted a formal airtight resolution that all such future gifts would be similarly declined. And so far, they have done that from anybody trying to, to uh, donate money from a, a will or, or for somebody in their family that died that was sober because of AA and trying to do something really nice. They pointed out that that the irresponsible had become responsible. Well, this is uh, in the in the, the next to the last paragraph of this tradition seven. It says, when the newspapers got hold of these facts, there was a profound reaction. To people familiar with endless drives for charitable funds, AA presented a strange and refreshing spectacle. Approving editorials here and abroad generated a great wave, great new wave of confidence in the integrity of Alcoholics Anonymous. They pointed out that the irresponsible had become responsible and that by making financial independence part of its tradition, Alcoholics Anonymous had revived an idea that is that this era had almost forgotten. And that is why Seventh Tradition reads just the way it does. And we don't accept outside contributions. Um, from there, I'm going to move on into the 12 and 12, and in, in the 12 and 12, at least the edition I have, it's page 161 where we run into Tradition 7. And some of this will kind of repeat itself. Um, it says um, on the first page, down at the top of the second paragraph, Says probably no AA tradition had the labor pains this one did, and I can I can just imagine being there, uh, trying to uh, decide this, and and fortunately having people who could see well enough that we we couldn't have too much money; it would kill us. Um, you know, we need to start paying our way, but the fellowship had to stay poor, and that just seems totally the opposite. But it has worked, and I believe that's what has kept us um, whole. In the third paragraph down, it says, There was another reason for our collective poverty. It was soon apparent that while alcoholics would spend lavishly on the 12-step cases, they had a terrible aversion to dropping money into a meeting place hat for group purposes. We were astounded to find that we were as tight as the bark on a tree. So AA, the movement, started and stayed broke while its individual members wax prosperous. And I have to tell you that uh, that has been a fact. I've witnessed it. I've participated in it, where I've taken people out to eat. I've put them up in a hotel and, uh, you know, for the night. And I've done other things, you know, for them, just like we all have. And uh, yet, when it came to the hat, it I got, um, you know, we get 
real snug and we say, well, we can't do too much or I can only afford this. One day I was, when I was contemplating all this and was doing some seventh tradition work with a sponsor, I was thinking about myself and how when I first came in, I was fired from the fire department for all things, for turning in a false fire alarm, which I just thought was a misdemeanor. It turns out it was public endangerment. The people I sent somewhere on a false call were there doing that when somebody died where they needed to be. And um, I faced a little deal there with the judge on that. But what I found out in studying this tradition was that when I showed up, I showed up at every meeting I went to, and I was doing at least a meeting a day, if not two when I could, or three. And every time the basket came around, I dropped a dollar in. You know, I was self-employed, but I was still paying all my bills and making some money. And I was putting a dollar in. And uh, after, a, after a few years, after several years of sobriety, one day I, I caught myself, and, I, and I, was, I was making about a meeting, well, about five meetings a week, maybe six, sometimes seven. And I was still putting a dollar in the basket. And I went home that night, and I did a I did a little inventory of that, and I thought, geez, I believe my wages have I've received several pay raises in the time that I've been sober, because I've been sober and showing up for work and doing what I'm supposed to. Yet I haven't given a raise to AA. And I boy, I really jerked myself up short there, and I had to start changing my ways in that respect for me. And I started putting a little bit more in the basket when I did it. And AA also has a birthday fund. And on your AA birthday, uh, we send in a donation to the general service office, or you may send it to the area or to your group. But you put it in an envelope, and it's marked for the birthday, and it's for gratitude for being sober the amount of time that you've been sober. And that generated uh, has generated monies also for to carry on this this. Uh, carrying the message. But I know that God has a way of uh, bringing it around to where I can see my own my own huge defects. And uh, one of them was I just hadn't passed on the, uh, the the pay raises I'd been given. And we don't, I don't ever hard case anybody about what they're put in because some people can only afford a few cents. Some can't afford any. And that's one thing we make clear at our, at our meeting, my home group, that give what you can, you know, and, uh, but don't worry if you don't have any to give. We did quit saying an old saying that used to go around was, when when the basket comes around, if you've got something to give, give it. If you need some, take it. Boy, we had to quit that because there were several people who were taking the hit out of the basket, and we had to stop that. But we had heard that from some other groups, and we thought it was pretty cool until we saw it in action. Down at the bottom of page 161, it says, Despite all these misgivings, we had to recognize the fact that AA had to function. Meeting places cost something. To save whole areas from turmoil, small offices offices had to be set up, telephones installed, and a few full-time secretaries hired. Over many protests, these things were accomplished. We saw that if they weren't, the the man coming in the door couldn't get a break. And on page 162, I just marked some of these highlights, some of these for myself to remember to say them. Um, we oh, so down in the bottom, the bottom of uh, the second paragraph there, it says the groups. So we asked the AA groups for voluntary contributions. Would they send us a dollar a member a year? Otherwise, this heartbreaking mail would have to go unanswered. And that was from the Saturday Evening Post article. 
And, uh, and like it says in the next sentence, it says, to my surprise, the response of the groups was slow. And it, it's been slow many times. We've had great drives. Gordon Patrick, when he was chairperson, when he was chairman of the board for AA, he started a thing called the Seventh Tradition, uh, drive and we really pushed it for a year and the contributions came up but at the end of about a year and a half to two years it had started dying right back down it's kind of hard to keep that in the forefront um let's see going over to page 163 um when bill donated that five bucks to that guy to uh a newcomer because he was mad nobody was sending in money and he just jerked out a five and gave it to this new guy so he could have groceries so he could uh, have some money whether he went and got drunk with it or not he didn't care but um he said i uh he later on he was sitting there at that same meeting when they passed the hat around and just as they were passing it around he he uh he started to put a 50 cent piece in and it looked really big so he pulled it back and he threw in a dime he said which clinked thinly as i dropped it in the hat uh hats never got folding money in those days so he says then i woke up I, who had boasted my generosity that morning with the $5 to the guy, was treating my own club worse than the distant alcoholics who had forgotten to send the foundation their dollars. And that is about where I was when I finally realized I hadn't given a raise. And um, I thank God for that because uh, I know that anything I have today is a direct result of God leading me to Alcoholics Anonymous and and putting me in a place where people could teach me how to live and develop principles uh, so that I could live and help others too. Um, down in the, on page 164 in the second paragraph, it says, uh, then there was a, uh, they had a, they had a debate. We'd been tossing in all the book income, even, even that hadn't, even that had been, hadn't been enough to make, to pay for everything that was needing to be done. And um, so they were really on tough times. Um, but then when we get down into the bottom of the last paragraph, it says, but like the alcoholic's first drink, it would, if taken, they're talking about getting this, all this money from other people, if taken with inevitably set up a disastrous chain reaction, where would that land us? Whoever pays the pipers have to call a tune. If the foundation obtained money from outside sources, its trustees might be tempted to run things without reference to the wishes of AA as a whole. And I know I read that once before, but I think it really bears repeating that if we start taking in money from outside sources, we're, we're, it, it's not, it's like a, a crack in the dam. It's going to get bigger, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to cause some real destruction for us. I think for us to stay right in what the traditions have taught us to do is the best. On page 165, uh, down in the second paragraph there, it says, Difficult as it was, they officially declined that $10,000 and adopted a formal airtight resolution that all such future gifts would be similarly declined. At that moment, we believe the principle of corporate poverty was firmly and finally embedded in AA tradition. And like I say, that's a repeat too. But I just, I believe in it so strongly because I've seen, I've been witness to some actions in AA that I, that just weren't the best for us. And, uh, and I know that they can lead us down a, a disastrous road. And, uh, 
I just I know that what these traditions lay out, if I listen to them and pay attention to them, and if we as a fellowship do, we're going to be so much better off. And the main concern is always is the people who are still coming, the people who aren't even born yet, they're going to be looking for the doors of AA. It's like my sponsor says. He always says, when I showed up, the door was open, the book was open, and the coffee was on. And he says, that is my responsibility. I need to make sure that that's there, too. And he sponsors a lot of people, but, boy, he wants to make sure that that's it, that the door's open. And that when we advertise a meeting, we say it's going to be a meeting at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock, that the door is open before that time and that people are welcomed in. You know, and, and so that the worst thing I think we can do is is say that there's going to be a meeting and we don't have one. And we have to pay our rent to keep those doors open. In the pamphlet, the AA group, on page 32, um, at the bottom, at the, in the last heading down there, it says, how are AA world services supported? Like the expenses of other AA activities, those of general service office are met generally by group and individual contributions. Since these contributions do not completely cover the cost of AA's world services, publishing income is used to help offset the deficit. And then on the next page, it has a diagram here showing what services the AA dollar pays for. And for the general service conference, about 12.5% of your dollar goes to that. Regional forums, about 7.8%. Archives, 10.3%. Trustees and directors, 6.6%. Group services, 37.8%. PI, 4.2%, or public information, excuse me, 4.2%. Cooperation with the professional community, 5.4%. Treatment, 1.9%. Now, when I read that word treatment, that is a, that is a, um, um, a service that he has that deals with treatment centers and and teaches and and we print out literature for all kinds of districts and areas and that on how to carry the message inside treatment centers and how not to get us um, affiliated and how to keep the lines drawn nice and clearly that we are there to in cooperation to help the alcoholic we're not there to, um, to affiliate ourselves with them it's not that a has its own treatment outfit. We tried that before too. The corrections, correctional facilities, 3.9%. That's for all literature and everything for that. And then loaners and overseas, 9.6%. We have a lot of loaners and limbs and we have people in correctional facilities also that get, uh, need information and sub sent to them. But loaners, I'm not sure if a lot of you are familiar with those, but we have some out here in Montana that live so far from a town that it's very difficult for them to get to meetings on a regular basis. So they sign up on a loaner's uh, program, and what happens is then the general service office mails them information, and when the districts or areas get information on somebody like that, they also try to support them by mailing information or making phone calls now. Uh, now we even have such things as Skype and all kinds of things that can help out, but it's a it's a... It's something that was set up to help people that were overseas, people who were on ship, uh, just all kinds of things, and that's a that's a very very good service. Um, so that's that's a part of the seventh tradition I wanted to read out of there. 
Now we get into some weighty stuff. And this is where controversy can spring up. This is in the back of the service manual in, in Concept 12 under Warranty 2. And in the service manual I have, which is 2006-2007, I had, a newer, I had newer ones, but I've given them away. So this is uh, the one that reflects the actions of the 2006 General Service Conference. And on page 64 is where Warranty 2 is found. And um, what it says, <clears throat> excuse me, under Warranty 2, sufficient operating funds plus an ample reserve should be its prudent financial response uh, principle. And that's what it's talking about with the conference and what AA should have. Um, and I'm going to move on over to an area. The main reason that I, I brought this up, this Warranty 2, is some things that I've read and some seriously let's say uh, spirited debates have been had over this. Um, but it's talking that down on page 66, down in the second, the third paragraph, it says about half of the last 20 years, A, group contributions have failed to meet our world need. Uh, but the reserve fund, constantly renewed by book sales, has been able to meet these deficits and save money besides. And... Uh, I'm going to read a little bit more of this. Uh, please bear with me. Uh, uh, has been able to meet these deficits and save money besides with that. But this has meant in, in the lives of uncounted alcoholics who might not have reached us and our, had our services been weak or non-existent, no one can guess. Financial prudence has paid off and lives saved. These facts about our reserve fund need to be better understood for sheer lack of understanding. It is still often remarked. One, the reserve fund is no longer needed. Two, that if the reserve fund continues to grow, perilous wealth will result. Three, that the presence of such a reserve fund discourages group contributions. Four, that because we do not abolish the reserve because that we do not abolish the reserve fund, we lack faith. Five, that our AA book ought to be published at costs of these volumes can be cheapened for hard-up buyers. Six, the profit-making on our basic literature is counter to a sound spirituality. While these views are by no means general, they are typical. Perhaps, then, there is still a need to analyze them and answer the questions they, are, they raise. Let us, therefore, try to test them. Do these views represent genuine prudence? Do we lack faith when we prudently insist on solvency? Then it goes into a part where a lot of the debate comes. It says, by means of cheap AA books, should we engage as a fellowship in this sort of financial charity? Should this sort of giving not be the responsibility of individuals? Is headquarters is the headquarters income from AA books really a profit after all? As this is written, 1960, our headquarters operation is just about breaking even. Group contributions are exceeding our service needs by about 5%. Well, that'd be great if it was still happening. And uh, then the grapevine continues to uh, be in the red, and compared with earlier days, that's wonderful. But I'm going to skip on over here uh, onto page um, 67. And it's in the, in the second paragraph. It is the fashion nowadays to believe that America can never see another serious um, business upset. <laughs> we certainly hope and pray that it will not, but it is wise for us of AA to make a huge bet. 
by dissipating our own asset. This would, that this could never happen. Would it not be far better instead for us to increase our savings in this period when the world about us, about us in all prob- probability has already borrowed more money than it can ever be repaid? Now let us examine the claim that the presence of our reserve fund discourages group contributions. It is said that the impression is created that DA headquarters is already well off and hence there is no need for more money. This is not at all the general attitude. However, its effect on contributions is probably small. Next comes the question of whether AA as a whole should go in for what amounts to money charity to individual newcomers and their sponsors via the selling of our books at cost or less. Up to now, we AAs have strongly believed that the money charity to the individual should not be a function of the AA groups or of AA as a whole. To illustrate, when a sponsor takes a new member in hand, he does not in the least expect that his group is going to pay the expenses he incurs while doing the 12-step work job. The sponsor may give his prospect a suit of clothes, may give him a job, or present him with an AA book. This sort of thing frequently happens, and it's fine that it does, but such charities are the responsibility of the sponsor, not the AA group itself. If a sponsor cannot give or lend an AA book, one can be found in the library. That says many groups sell books on the installment plan. There is no scarcity of books. More than a half million are now in circulation. Uh, hence, there seems to be no really good reason why AA service should supply everybody with cheap books, including a large majority who can easily pay the going price. It appears to be altogether clear that our world services need these need those book dollars for more than just more than just the buyers do. Excuse me. Now, this next paragraph. This is where I've gotten into some good ones, too. Some of us have another concern, and it's related to the so-called book profits. The fact that AA headquarters and most of the groups sell books for more than they cost is thought to be spiritually bad. But is this sort of non-commercial book income really a profit after all? In my view, it is not. This is Bill speaking. This net income to the groups and to AA's general services is actually the sum of a great many contributions which the group buyers, which the book buyers make to the general welfare of Alcoholics Anonymous. The certain and continuous solvency of our world services rests squarely upon these contributions. Looked at in this way, our return fund is seen to be actually the aggregate of many small financial sacrifices made by the book buyers. This fund is not the property of private investors. It is wholly owned by AA itself. Now, one of the big problems that comes up there is back when this was written, that was large, that was really true, that the people buying them were AA members, buying them for their groups, for their districts, for their areas, uh, whatever they were buying them for. It was mainly members of AA buying them. But later on, there got to be lots of people buying huge amounts of, of uh, large, large book orders, uh, treatment centers, um, the government, for the armed services. Some of the major leagues, uh, football and baseball, some of them were buying large numbers of books to, to try to help their members. There's been a lot of, lot of large book orders made by people other than AA. And part of the debate that I was in on, and uh, hasn't been settled yet, was the fact that 
if they were people, if they were AA members buying them, I could we, I could understand them being contributions. But when we start selling them at a profit to outside entities, um, we can't we can't call that a contribution. This is my opinion here now, and um, and a lot of people say, well, they're getting to the alcoholics. Well, a lot of them are being bought and and sent to different places like prisons, so everybody coming through the door gets one. That's not making sure that an alcoholic gets the book. And also, it, it takes away from the sponsor doing that type of thing. And I'm I'm just throwing this out at this time because and it and all the answers won't be given to you today. I'm sure I'm going to probably raise more questions and get answered. But in I brought this up at a region at a um, at a forum in um, in Nebraska. Um, and I asked the, the chief financial officer that we had at that time and the trustee at large, and I got up and I says, well, since we are so adamant about rigorous honesty in AA, why is it that we don't just change our statement saying that we are self-supporting through our own contributions and change that to we are self-supporting through our own, our own contributions in some profit from literature sales, and at least be honest about it. Who uh, there was some heated debate went on right away on that one. But to me, I've, I've been driven in AA by trying to be rigorously honest, which means working hard at it, which has been hard for me because I had no clue about honesty before I got to AA. And this question raises itself time and time again in doing work in correctional facilities and other places. Uh, where we do have funds coming in from outside sources buying this book to give to all kinds of people who are not necessarily uh, members of our fellowship. And uh, so with that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to unmute everybody. And um, since I've really kicked the spokes out of this wheel on this last, on this last part, and I'd like to hear because uh, I'm always interested in people's uh, take on all of this about the seventh tradition, but especially in this last part, because I've, I've seen a few things that have uh, oh, given me concern over what some of the things that go on. But as we as we progress in time, we all know that we get a little bit numb to the fact that of what what really counts, and sometimes we need an awakening, which comes in the form of an inventory or somebody rocking the boat that makes us all take a look at ourselves. And so I'm going to do a uh, another uh, star six, and I think, or no, I'm going to do a star five, and this should open it up for everybody. Hang on, just one. Unmuted. Okay, you're all. Bob, it's Kevin Nashville. The question. Okay, I just I just got back on myself. Who is this? This is Tim Hanson in Nashville. With a question. Sure. Um, little background in our um, uh, intergroup association here in SA in Nashville. It is commonplace and kind of customary, I suppose, it's become for a group to send uh, monies beyond the prison reserve into intergroup. Intergroup then sends a donation to the uh, area, in our case, the, the Southeast Regional Assembly, 
and the top staff, their treasury, which we have to manage, and then sends the rest into um, central office. Now, I am also an alcoholic, and my AA group sends money to the local intergroup association, which is different than intergroup in, in SA. The equivalent of in, uh, intergroup in SA would be a combination of the intergroup in AA plus the area. But my, my AA group sends money to the intergroup, that's separate, but also to the area, also to the district, also to GSO. Now, I'm wondering if in our um, evolving manner of doing things, if we're not short-circuiting the intent of the seventh concept, which states in part, as I pull it up before me and try to crash my car, it relies upon a tradition and the AA purse for final effectiveness to enforce the charter. By bypassing this, sending money to the area, sending money to central office, sending money to the general delegate assembly, sending money to the local intergroup, are, are we nullifying that provision accounted for in the seventh concept? Well, um, there's a couple things on this. Uh, one is that you're, you're talking two different service structures, and I'm, I'm familiar, I'm becoming more and more familiar with the SA service structure. Um, but uh, I know that in AA that we have districts, areas, and then the, uh, air, the area assembly, and then we go to the general service office. And we contribute to all of them. We also have intergroups, which intergroups were actually around before the general service structure was, way back when. But in a lot of places, there's not uh, hardly any intergroups. In fact, out in our region, there's very few um, because of the remoteness, and a lot of the towns aren't even big enough to warrant one. But in, in, sending, in sending funds to each one of the legs of the service structure, all we're doing is we're paying our own bill. Uh, you know, by sending it to the district and sending it to the area and sending it to the general service conference and to intergroups if we have one. And we pay them so that they can do the work that we ask them to do. The the power of the purse um, has come into question here uh, several times. It started back with uh, the San Diego International Conference when there were some funds accepted from San Diego, um, a, a large chunk of money, to um, that was just given to AA and it was put into the into the general fund, and it, and later on in years after a lot of debate they quit doing that, and now cities uh, handle all the stuff for a convention on their own, and we don't receive that. But the but one of the problems of the power of the purse is if we keep supplementing everything with the with the literature and raising the cost of literature, we do actually in a large way nullify the power of the purse. And there was another thing that kind of changed here several years ago is when they brought in a thing called the floating cap at the general service uh, office and conference. And and it gave, instead of having to stay current with the amount that was allotted for prudent reserve, there was a, a lot of the time to run over that and, and then figure out how to disperse it, hanging on to it for a while. And, and it got to be a real problem, and I don't believe that that's been resolved yet because uh, what they used to do was when they started to get over the amount for the prudent reserve, 
they would drop the price of literature and sell literature at a lot cheaper rate until it all came back into to uh, to be an even. But the power of the purse is still really the only only chance that that has. But it would have to be a very united front at this time, I'm afraid, uh, in order for it to have any real sway um, in AA because it's so large and and uh, and that. That floating cap kind of took some of the uh, urgency off of that, and it gives uh, a lot of time to react. I'm not particularly fond of it, but that's what's in there, so now we support it. But uh, we have done that in my home group. We have changed the amount that we send in to each entity. We decide who gets what. Um, our group decides whether the inner group gets anything or the district or the area or the general service office. And we decided the amount. There was a pamphlet called Circles of Love and Service. And in that, it described how to split that up on a percentage basis on after you pay all your beer, beer bills, not your beers, <laughs> after you pay all your bills, um, and then you have this certain amount left over after your income and you're paying all your bills and you have your food and reserve set up for paying your rent and that. Okay, whatever was left over, we just split. And some was like it was the... Uh, uh, 60, 30, 20, or 60, uh, 20, 20, or, uh, yet however they split it and, and sent it out. And that's, each group has the right to do that. In fact, at some of our things, we've actually sent money out of our conferences to the World Lit, uh, Translation Fund for translating literature rather than send it to any of the services because we thought they were all, um, they were all above what we thought was a prudent reserve. That help at all? Yeah, the power of the purse allows my group to um, uh, withhold funds or divert them somewhere else if we don't think that our area is performing in the way we view the area should be performed or the district or the GSO. Right. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the key thing is there that you have every group has the right to send uh, whatever they want to to whoever. But one of the dangers there is if you start holding back from somebody, you need to send it somewhere so that you don't get too big a reserve yourself. Right. And uh, yeah, we 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 reserve the right to do that, and we have changed ours. We don't change it every business meeting. We have a business meeting every month, and we have to vote on it twice before we change it, so that we don't fluctuate too much. And uh, but we have changed it from the you know, how much we give to the district and how much we give to the area and how much we give to the general service office. We've changed it many times depending upon their financial status. And what I'm seeing in at least AA where I, or, sorry, at least in SA where I live is that the overflow is going to the group, which is equivalent of the area, roughly, and the overflow from that is going to the um the regional assembly, which is the equivalent of the district, roughly, and the overflow from that is going on to um, um, central office, which is the equivalent, roughly, of the general service office. And so there's right. a downstream effect, at which point we don't really have an impact on any of the individual entities as we go. I'm wondering if that's a problem in light of this concept. Well, I know that for us, um, I know that for some places in the United States where everybody sends their money right into the NAA, but they send the money into the area, and then they let the area decide where the money goes, whether it's back to a district, not to the general service, or if they keep it all or whatever. But uh, from what I read, the, the upside-down pyramid, the groups are the ones who are in charge. 
And in order for a group to have any sway on the on the power of the purse, it would seem that they would need to to handle that themselves. And it's in our group that way we stay cognizant of what's going on in each one of those entities, and therefore then we divide the money up differently when it needs to be. This is John in Nashville. Hey, John. Hey, guys. Uh, there's a little bit of a misstatement of the of the, of the situation with uh, the money in Nashville. When the group send their money to Intergroup, Intergroup sends a hundred dollars, one hundred dollars a month. That's all they send to uh, the region. And then after that, any money over top of the food reserve goes to Seiko. That's our entire service structure. Uh, we don't have anything in between uh, intergroup. And then yeah. The region, and then you know, we don't have the uh, the multiple steps such as AA has. So there is a there is a bit of difference in the setup. But I have to say our our fellowship operates at least at our level very prudently. I do believe we we don't have large uh, large amounts of money laying around. I've witnessed that, John. As you know, as a trustee, a Class A trustee, a non-sexaholic trustee for SA, I've witnessed that. And uh, yeah, it's not like there's a lot of money just flying around. And uh, I know that as the as the fellowship develops and you increase in numbers, you, you might have to eventually sometime uh, have a little bit more of a breakdown or. Um, Different different steps in the service structure, but the way it's working right now seems to be working great for you guys. I was in in um, Ukraine and AA over there doesn't even have districts; they just have groups, and they don't even hardly talk to each other. And they have one central office in the whole country, and uh, nobody really contributes. <laughs> but it's just in its infancy there. But I know that here, this is how how we've been doing it, and I know that in SA. Uh, this seems to be working great there too. How the monies are divided and sent on to uh, the different entities that uh, maintain the services. I know what Seiko does; is they handle everything. You know, they handle so much stuff that comes in from all over the world. Yes, they do, and they do an admirable job at it as well. Yeah, they're very, very uh, prudent. And I have to say that mostly in, in AA, it's that way too. It's just that we've made some bobbles in some decisions a couple of times. I just happened to have been there, and sometimes I was part of the problem, and sometimes I've been part of the solution. <laughs> Other times I've just been a dissenter. Anybody else? Or did that answer yeah, all your questions? This is Robert. And hey, Robin. We've got a little bit different question. Uh, and it kind of came out of AA, but it, I think it's uh, applicable to SA as well. Uh, there's a friend of mine that sent me a, uh, a link to watch a YouTube uh, segment. And he had gone home to his home group up in uh, Massachusetts, 
And uh, you, you, he's lived in the South for many years now and was disturbed. Uh, and the link that he sent me showed uh, an AA member, uh, full you know, uh, facial identification and name, uh, seated in a church pew being interviewed uh, by someone, but uh, it was the pastor of the church. And the pastor of the church... Uh, had come to the point where uh, they really supported AA, loved AA, were doing everything for AA and trying to get as many AA meetings at this church as they could, and were providing uh, child care services for AA members, and were going to hold a, uh, a big barbecue uh, for AA and all. And... I was wondering if you see that as a violation of the traditions, uh, one, kind of affiliation, two, but uh, accepting outside contributions. You know, we should be self-supporting for our own contributions, and most of the time we talk about money. What about services? Well, that's, that's a great question, Robert. As a matter of fact, I believe I saw that, that uh, thing on YouTube, However, it was printed up a little bit different when I read it, and it showed a it showed a guy that seemed to be a priest, and he was sitting in a pew with a with a stained glass window behind him, and and he was evidently saying that he was a member of AA, and he had some comments to make, and it was a full face on picture of him and an interview. But uh, regardless, uh, when I see the stuff on YouTube and stuff that really uh, seems to border on or, or uh, cause problems with the traditions, I have to remember where it is and how it got there. Because some of it, it's, um, they'll, they'll take the same picture and they'll rewrite it and send it back out again. As far as the, the providing babysitting for AA, having that provided by the church, I would consider personally that is a violation of the tradition. We have done that as a group. We have, we have come together and said, hey, we've got enough people here that need uh, that they, they need to make meetings and they need a babysitter. And we did that for a while, and the group paid for it, but not, not through group funds. It was individuals donating to babysitting funds, different than group funds. We, we didn't take any group funds to, to finance uh, babysitting. And it worked for quite a while until all of a sudden there was a whole bunch of people who kind of started trying to drop off kids here to be babysat. But um, as far as, as we have to be very careful, the lines that we draw that, that we can can make uh, fuzzy with uh, other entities. And in the ninth tradition, it says that we, uh, it says, um, let me see, how does it say that it talks about, Actual or implied, and that's one of the things we have to really watch with our what we do with other entities because we can affiliate ourselves with other entities, actual or implied, because not everybody understands our traditions. We are the only ones who can break them. Other other entities can't break our traditions. Only we can do that. For AA, only the AA members can break AA's tradition. And as far as for accepting uh, 
babysitting or other things from other outside entities, then we are violating our traditions by showing affiliation, actual or implied. And what it looks like to people outside of there can be very bad, too, and very misleading. And, it, you know, uh, it can cause a lot of problems down the line. But we just keep it very clean and simple. We, uh, as far as I know, most most places, they they rent, you know, a lot of, a lot of groups from whatever uh, fellowship rent from churches. But we pay rent. We actually pay rent. And it's a fixed amount um, each time until you know there's a pay uh, a rent raise needed. But uh, we don't uh, we don't accept any charities from any anybody. We have to pay our own way. That's an absolute. And I think as soon as we start blurring those lines, then everybody starts thinking, well, if that's okay, then this is okay. And I think we can really get in a pile of trouble. And I believe that to be true for any fellowship. that answer it? Yes, sir. Okay, good question, though. Anybody else? I'll also have a story. And, uh, okay. It's kind of a seventh tradition story, but it's uh, a little bit different. When I moved from uh, California to Atlanta, Back in uh, 1990, I started attending a meeting at a club, uh, and the uh, club, the, it was an early bird meeting at meet to 7 o'clock in the morning, and it was fairly well attended, but they didn't have any service positions, uh, or at least weren't filling them, and I asked if anybody had an intergroup rep and, or who the intergroup rep is, and they didn't have one, so I became the intergroup rep, and they didn't have a regular business meeting, and and, uh, and we started doing that, but we would take up the seventh tradition every day uh, when we passed the basket, and whoever was uh, chairing the meeting that morning would... Uh, count the money, put it in an envelope, and somebody else would count it just to make sure that the count was right. And then they'd write the amount on the envelope, and there was a floor safe behind the desk, and they'd just drop it down into the floor safe. And uh, and that's how they took care of it. Now, it was a private club. It uh, was not owned by AA, but it's only AA business that happens at the club. And... Anyway, as I was going to the intergroup meetings uh, and they were publishing uh, the contributions from the various groups, I saw that my group was not contributing anything, that the club was not contributing anything to Alcoholics Anonymous either at the intergroup or the uh, at the area level. And so I brought that up to my group and I said, you know, uh, i got a problem with this because when I put a dollar in the basket, I expect part of that money to fund uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I know that you know we need to pay our rent and expenses and all, but I can't go to a meeting and not put a dollar in the basket, and I can't go to a meeting and put a dollar in the basket and know that none of that money goes to Alcoholics Anonymous. So anyway, uh, we told the uh, the club that we wanted to start paying our own way and uh, and tell us what that we weren't going to put the money in the safe anymore, that they could, they could tell us what uh, the rent would be and uh, coffee expense, and, you know, and we'd pay it and 
we'd start making our own contributions. Well, America hit the fan, and they said, no, uh, you're going to continue to put the money in the floor safe, and uh, or you can leave. And, uh, and I voted with my feet, and, I mean, I, I just can't go to a meeting that isn't going to support Alcoholics Anonymous, even though it's an AA meeting. And, uh, and anyway, the, uh, this went on for several months and, uh, and eventually it was determined that the treasurer of the club had, uh, embezzled more than a quarter million dollars over the years and they gave him the option of either, you know, trying to pay it back or go to prison and he opted to go to prison. Since that time, that Billy Bird Triangle meeting became the largest single contributor to Alcoholics Anonymous in the state of Georgia. <laughs> yeah. You brought up a very good point there. I, you know, uh, and I, I don't know if everybody's heard of what an Alano club is, but it's a, it's a, it's where a group of people get together and form a corporation and they either build a building or rent a building and then they rent out rooms to, like, AA groups to have meetings in. And they get rent from the AA groups, or they'll even have a little snack bar in it. That's what we had here in Billings when I first sobered up. And there's a lot of towns have uh, Alano clubs. And But there's a the thing that was, that's very confusing, and that's that's what's so important about things like what we're doing here with this traditions talk on the, on the telephone here, and having studies within your district and around your groups, that so many people don't understand the history or the structure of what the fellowship is that they're in that's actually keeping them alive. And an Alano club is not AA because they actually they rent out rooms to Alanons, they've rented out rooms to other people. They're not AA and we just pay rent to them and as a matter of fact, the one here in Billings at that time was over on 204 Grand, and they had kind of a floor safe with a, a envelope drop to drop in there with a thing welded up over the top so that you couldn't just reach down in. But some enterprising folks figured out that putting a piece of gum on the end of a stick and jamming it down in there, you could pick envelopes out of there. And they were cleaning it out fairly regularly. But what we have done is we pay rent to Alano's if, if there's a group that has them. There's one left here in town that is a 510 cook group at the meeting place. It's a 644 group meets there. And they just pay rent to the people who the board of trustees that, that have that corporation. And the rest of the money they collect all goes into the service structure. And that's a very, very important, uh, very important part is that people get that line blurred and they think that Alano clubs are actually um, AA. And I've been to, I started going to them wherever I traveled as a delegate and other places just to see if we had the only really sick one here in Billings. And I was amazed that I only found like two that were really healthy. The rest get have the lines blurred and it, and it got really messy at times. And, uh, but there's some that are good, and I think some of that got straightened out when people started becoming more educated about the history and the structure. Um, you know, there's a, you brought up something else that made me think of the intergroup versus district and, um, answering services and stuff. And 
We have an intergroup here in Billings. As a matter of fact, my sponsor and I got it started back in '83, but it uh, and it it has since taken on some changes. And uh, and there's also a district. And I don't know if many of you know this, but intergroups are a community-based structure, and it's for like a given town or a certain geographic area in a very small area, not huge. And, and that's what an intergroup is. A district is a geographic area, but it encompasses, it takes in a lot more ground, usually, out here in Montana. Although I've, I've seen it in other places where they're a little bit, uh, they're smaller because of the amount of people they have. But they're not, they're, the uh, intergroup is not part of the service structure in AA. Intergroups are just part of, uh, you know, a, a community service. And what we, We've gotten into some real difficulty over that. As a matter of fact, intergroups cannot, or intergroups cannot send money to the general service office of Alcoholics Anonymous because they're not part of the service structure. And the money can't be exchanged back and forth between the districts and the intergroups. And we had quite a deal happen here a few years ago in Billings where they started an answering service at the area and got it going, and the first bill they presented, they sent to Billings, but they sent it to the intergroup office, and the intergroup paid it. And then later on, when the district found out about it, they said, oh, well, we were supposed to pay that, so let's just make payments to district. Well, I happened to be at the next district meeting, and I said, you can't do that. You owe them the money. Pay them. You've got it. You can't sit here and hold money in reserve for yourselves when you owe money to an outfit you weren't supposed to accept money from at all. And oh man, it kind of got all heated and debated, but finally everybody saw the thought and it showed it to them right in black and white, and they finally got that straightened out. And it can be very confusing to people, and especially like on this call, when we get to talking with SA and AA, intergroup means something different in SA than it does in AA. And it's, it's more, um, it is part of the service structure. And uh, it was hard for me when I first started attending essay uh, conferences and business meetings to get that right in my head because I was getting that all wrong. But in AA, they are two different, it's a different thing entirely. Did I confuse anybody? No? Well, good. Is there any other questions or comments? Steve? Anybody there? I'm here. Oh, I'm here. I thought I had disconnected myself or something. No, no, I was muted, but I was unmuted. Oh, okay. Well, does anybody else have any more questions or comments or? No, huh? Okay. Well, I thank, thank you, you all for allowing me to uh, ramble on and, and read this stuff. And But the Concept 2 thing, I hope I didn't stir anybody up too much, but I think it bears thought. It really bears a lot of thought, I believe. And uh, we should be questioning. That was our job. I think at the General Service Conference, the first one, they, they, looked at half of the, they had half of the delegates show up, and their job was to look that place over from the attic to the cellar and to ask questions, not to just sit there and accept everything that was said. And I think that's extremely important in AA or any fellowship you're in, 
If you have questions and you've been doing some reading and you got questions about what's going on, ask them. Because, like you'll hear time and time again, the only stupid question is the one that isn't asked. And sometimes it, somebody's going to ask a question that people don't like to hear, but it'll make everybody set up and take notice and do a little research and get back on track. Thank you for all your good work, Bob. Pardon? Thanks. Thank you for all your good work. Thanks, Bob. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.